Hi, this is Rena, coming to you live from Egypt, with a very special episode of Misinformed, namely, a Reinformed. March 15th marks the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic, and describes the events in 1948 when Palestinians were forced to flee their homes and their country. To mark this occasion, we are re-releasing our Real Talk episode with Omar, where we talk about the Palestinian Christian experience. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Madhvi Romani. And I'm Rina Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week, we'll be discussing a new topic or trend, so you can stay informed the easy way. So Rina, what are we talking about this week? This week on Misinformed, we have a very special guest. We have my friend Omar here, who is from a Palestinian Christian family. Both of his grandparents fled Palestine roughly around 1948. We did an entire episode on Palestine. We will link it in our newsletter and you can have a listen to that. Omar's family eventually settled in Jordan, where Omar grew up, and he went on to attend the German Jordanian University, and today he lives in Germany. One of the reasons why we wanted to have Omar come in and talk to us is because you don't really hear a lot about the Christians in the Palestine-Israel conflict. They are largely left out of the narrative, so we wanted to have him come in and talk about his experiences. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here talking to you about this. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Let's start with religion. <laughs> like a very nice light topic to start with. Right? <laughs> One of the three things you never talk about. Religion, politics and sex. We start with religion. Can you tell us about the particular religious communities that you grew up in? In the Middle East, we have a significant Christian presence. We have predominantly Catholics and Orthodox, but we also have, you know, Depending on the different regions, you have also different segments and types of Christianity there. So personally, I'm half-half. So my mother's side of the family is Orthodox and my father's side is Catholic. Is that normal or okay for Catholics to marry Orthodox? Yeah, I would say so. Probably maybe 100 years back, it was slightly frowned mm-hmm. upon, but it happened. But nowadays, it's, it's definitely acceptable. It's completely fine. And how do the two differ? Like, Good did question. you notice? Um, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, did you notice any noticeable differences growing up, or was it just all eh, Christianity? No, you know, it's all just Christianity. So the only difference is that the Catholics, there's the Pope, and you know, the center is in Rome and so on. But with Orthodox, it's also an Eastern approach, so mm-hmm. uh, emphasis on you know Greece and the Church being there. So it's just. Some different traditions there, but definitely same belief. And And so your grandparents, was it both sets of grandparents were forced from Palestine in around 1948? Can you tell us about this journey and what happened? My four grandparents were all born in Palestine. Two of them were born in Jaffa, Palestine, and two were born in Jerusalem, Palestine. Roughly around 1948, so none of them were married by that time. They all got married in Jordan later on. But roughly around that time, they had changes in their lives, definitely. So I can give you an example of my grandfather, who's from Jaffa. His family, he was at that time even studying in Beirut, Lebanon. And his family, when 1948 Nakba happened, 
they had to move out of Jaffa. So they went and stayed for three months on the uh, Egyptian border, first of all. Then after that, they went, went into Cairo. Then they couldn't really find a job there. His father couldn't really find something immediate. So they had to relocate and they went to Amman, Jordan. And he was the only one who left with his father because he was old enough to work and to support. But his, his younger brothers were all attending school in Cairo. As for my grandma, for example, his eventually wife, her family was in Jerusalem and her father was a, a teacher and also the head of the choir in, in one of the churches in Jerusalem. And when it happened, they first moved to a small town next to Jerusalem called Birzeit because mm-hmm. it was more safe there. And actually, when Nakba happened, they had to sleep for a month in the church itself because they because they perceived that it would be more safe to sleep in the church. And then they had to relocate back and went to Birzeit, which is a small town. So she grew up still there for probably eight years more. And then when she wanted to also find a job, she relocated to, to Jordan. But her parents stayed until 1967 almost in Palestine, in Birzeit. And you can also see that how, you know, families got separated Mm -hmm. during that. So it had a big effect. And also same for my other grandparents as well. They all had a similar story of how it affected them all. But eventually they all settled in Jordan and worked there and got married there. And But the biggest tragedy is that also the families got separated. Do you have anyone that you know is still in Palestine? Yes. We don't have a relationship with them necessarily, but for example, my grandfather's brother, who was from Jerusalem, so other grandfather, his brother and I think his, his basically sons and grandchildren by now, some of them stayed in Jerusalem and they have a business of running hotels, quite successful, so they stayed there. Yeah, again, this separation, because you know, you have also then to see how this affected the dynamics of the family. So one brother was in Jordan, the other in Palestine. And then the annexation of uh, of the West Bank happened and then the separation again. And in 1967, it became under Israeli control and you can't really go back and forth and all that. So it had a huge influence on, on everyone, really. Yeah, I just wanted to ask because your grandfather and your grandmother, they went through this trauma of having to leave their homeland. How did they sort of deal with it? Did they talk openly about it? How did they process it? And how did you witness like how this affected them? Of course, you, you witness sadness when you talk to them about it. And they do talk about it quite uh, frequently, you know. I don't think they truly dealt with the trauma successfully, to be honest, because you c- you can see that they were not ready for something this tragic, this sudden, because basically they had to literally pick up and leave, leaving literally everything behind. Their property, land, everything. Jobs, friends, everything was left behind. They had to start completely from scratch. And the mentality at first when they left was like, we'll be there in a week. They thought it's just something, you know, something small in which in a a week they might be there. Time just passed by. So my grandma, who was a nine-year-old in the church, sleeping and just listening to bombs and fights around her, probably was, of course, an afraid young girl with her parents back then. But there was always this hope that her father can go back to be, you know, the the school teacher, working with the choir, all that. 
Same for her, you know, the, the places they grew up in, they had to completely start over. And even when they moved to Jordan, you know, Jordan, first of all, is a country with almost probably 60% of the population is originally Palestinian. You can see uh, growing up in Jordan, you can collectively feel that sadness and anger as well. Because, you know, the feeling is that the world uh, entirely, you know, gave up on the cause and no one cares and I, I think this type of this type of sadness and feeling neglected definitely has long term effects. You know, my my grandma, bless her soul, is still alive, but yeah, she suffers from a, a dementia, and it's mm. extremely extremely uh, tough to see her like that. And I I'm a firm believer that this was influenced by all the tragedies that happened in her life. Because, as I said, it did not just affect her when she was a nine-year-old. It continued affecting her. Her brothers, her parents were always in different countries. Growing up, her children weren't with her as well in many cases. Her family isn't around sometimes, you know. And this affects you, especially for people who are extremely family-oriented. And even the fact me being here in Germany now is maybe an extension of that. Did you see an effect then in your parents? Because it's different for each generation. Yeah, yeah. you know, my, my parents were a generation that had to also start from scratch because their parents moved to a new country and started from scratch as well. And they came up in that circumstances. They came up in an, also in a country uh, that, that they love, but they also feel that they hear their grandparents or their parents, you know, always talk about Palestine and the love for Palestine and, and, and. So that definitely also gets to them. So I've never been, of course, to Palestine, but you just feel feel it so deeply just by seeing the love that it represents for your grandparents and for the entire community and everyone you actually meet in Jordan. So this, of course, rubs on them. And they also have to live with that and to grow up in their schools, you know, always talking about that. And there's always, you know, this hope that never materializes. And they lived that. They lived that more than I do, definitely. Probably I grew up in an age where there's no hope somehow about a Palestinian victory, unfortunately saying. But they probably grew up with that hope and they witnessed a lot of it disappear. And they witnessed, you know, yeah, feeling abandoned by the world and neglected. And they definitely got affected by that. So as a generation, not as individuals, they definitely felt that they have been, you know, neglected and the hopes have slightly gone away. I was going to ask, do you believe in a victory? Yes, I do. Eventually. I think if you don't, then things are meaningless. So you have to have hope sometimes that justice in a way will eventually prevail especially if you look back in history you you look at especially that region of the world and see the conflicts that have happened all over the years you know you start seeing that 75 years is an extremely long period of time but you do believe that and you see it that things can change what people have to do in to put in the work but things always change and you always have to have hope one of the things that Rena told me, she said that you couldn't go back to Palestine. Is that true? <laughs> um, to be honest, I don't really know. Now I'm, I'm a Jordanian, so mm. there are different types of... Or this affected people differently. Mm. So people who went to Jordan 
and not all of them uh, got Jordanian passports because you know you had this you know whole thing of the West Bank and the annexation of the West Bank and so on. So if you basically moved prior, you would get a Jordanian passport. But if not, in, and you became a refugee basically after that, you won't get a passport. So you have many people up until today living in you know refugee camps where. The situation isn't great, of course, and you don't have any official paperwork. So you have zero passports. They were many, a generation was born like that and continues to live like that. And when you don't have a passport, you don't work. And when you don't work, you can't, you're always destined to, to live a bad life. Mm. You know, bad, I mean, bad conditions where you don't really have an opportunity to at least give it your best and try to educate yourself and do something on your own because you really don't have that right. Yeah. In Jordan, it's probably one of the, probably the best country when it comes to, maybe I'm biased here, but to, to the Palestinian cause when it comes to how refugees are treated. You look at other countries in the region or in the West, and that was never the case. Until now, you, you find people in extremely bad conditions. Why do you think Jordan had a different approach? You know, if you go back to the separation anyway of the entire region, of how it all happened, this might be a long story anyway, but... Go for it. So back in, in 1915, when it was about the time for the First World War, there was this Ottoman Empire in the region, of course. To an extent, many Arab nationalists felt that they were mistreated by the Ottoman Empire. And Britain had its own interests in the region. And when it came about to what happens there, they wanted to see what they can do about it. And... Then they talked to Sharif Hussein, who was the biggest role, let's say, a person can have. And he was the Sharif of Mecca, okay, at that time. And there was this, you know, letters back and forth, this, this correspondence between him and a guy called MacMahon, who was from Britain at that time. And he was one of the leading figures. And Mahon was asking him to join and, or to, to do some sort of an uprising against the Ottoman Empire. Eventually, when they were doing that, he accepted, so Sharif Hussain accepted based on the borders of the new Arab country to be under what is currently now Turkey. So basically Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, Iraq, and the entire Gulf. And that was supposed to be the country. And the uprising started, but eventually after that, there was this Belfort Declaration. And Belfort Declaration is, you know, about giving Zionists or the Jews a country in Palestine as, you know, a home. And at the same time also, which was unknown to Sharif Hussein at that time, there was this Sykes-Picot, who were two generals in the British and French army, in which they divided the entire region a bit to the borders of the countries we know today. And at that time, France took Syria and Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, Palestine, uh, Britain took them, basically. At first, basically, to an extent, Britain did not basically live up to their promise to Sharif Hussein. And in order to basically maybe give some something in return, they put one of his kids, his children, Faisal, as a king of Iraq and the other one as the king of Jordan. And Sharif Hussein remained in Hijaz, which was half Saudi Arabia, which is the western part of Saudi Arabia. 
and the, you had the other eastern part of Saudi Arabia, which was Najd. And Najd was, so they were somehow different uh, different areas in Saudi Arabia. After this all unfolded, they told Sharif Hussein that he, they, they wanted to pay him off to basically sign on the on the Balfour Declaration and to give mm-hmm. Palestine, but mm-hmm. he he disapproved. Eventually, they supported the Najd ruler at that time, who is called Saud, and uh, basically he took over and unified what is currently Saudi Arabia, so Saud, and that where that's where basically the name Saudi comes from, which mm. is the name of the first king, Saud. Anyway, going back to Palestine and why Jordan mm. is, is extremely close, Jordan was first not a country, it was an emirate, mm. and it was called Transjordan because of the Jordan River. Okay, mm. so it was to an extent at first a no-man's land, and the population in Jordan was 200,000 people only. And that was in 1921, let's say, mm-hmm. roughly around that time when the segmentation of the countries actually happened. And Palestine was a mandate and Jordan was under the rule of, or not the rule, but under the supervision, let's say, of the mandate of Palestine. So somehow Jordan was part of the mandate, so to say. But after a period of time, the person who was in charge in Palestine the, said that Jordan can be independent, and they, they put the first king of Jordan, King Abdullah. He was the founder of Jordan. So that's why there's this close connection, of course. But more so to say later on, 1948, when it happened, after that, the West Bank, what you now know as the West Bank, was under Jordanian rule. Mm-hmm. And that stayed until 1967, when it was taken over by Israel. So that's why you have also this close relationship. And in many cases, when 1948 happened, people in the West Bank were offered the Jordanian citizenship when it became under the Jordanian rule. So you have a Jordanian passport? Yes. But you've never tried to go to Palestine because... No, it would be too sad to go to Palestine mm-hmm. under those situation and conditions. And it would be extremely difficult even if I try to. I'm not sure if you're allowed uh, or if you're given the... And you know, so... my uncle uh, is from this... So he's been living since he was 16 years old in the, in the States. And when he wanted to visit also with his family, who are non-Arab... So his, his wife is non-Arab, basically... And they both have a U.S. citizenship, so they're both passport. Yeah, they, the Israeli officials let his uh, wife and family and kids basically pass. But because they know his name and can tell that he's originally Palestinian, they made him wait for like 10 hours and then they let him enter. And that's an American citizen. Did you talk to him about how it was for him to go back? No. Can you call him up but, 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 <laughs> right now? <laughs> you know, I, I can expect how it was. It, it's definitely, it, it moves you definitely on the inside. I sometimes, or not sometimes, whenever I go back home to Jordan, I travel, of course, over Palestine. And the feeling I get just by flying over there, looking at the Mediterranean and looking at the entire coast, and just imagining that my grandfather, you know, was who, who told me so much stories about fishing in the sea and how it felt for him and always explaining. And you can see the love in his eyes when he talked about it. Just imagining that I could have been there. And in probably 
five minutes, you're you're over or already Jordan. You can't imagine how close in proximity it is. It, it takes an eleven minute helicopter ride to be to be to go from Amman to Jerusalem. Probably like a forty minute drive by car. And your parents also have never been. Actually, my father he was born in Jordan in nineteen sixty three, but he then moved back to Jerusalem and lived there for, I think, seven, eight years. But then things became extremely dangerous and his parents started, uh, so my grandparents started fearing for the safety of their children because they started seeing that it became a bit too dangerous and they basically decided to move back to Jordan. Does he talk about this time? Yes, yes, he Hmm. he loved, you know, he... I don't know how, he was extremely young, but he remembers a lot and he was extremely fond of it and talks always about, you know, Jerusalem and the old city and the the streets there and remembers names and shops and food and extremely small details he remembers. And Mm -hmm. it's extremely fascinating to me how he left there probably as a 10-year-old and he remembers all that still. So in terms of identity, you have a lot of different things coming into play. How do you identify? Because you have like Palestine, Jordan, Christianity, Arab, like what, how do you feel or what do you identify with? I feel identity in many cases might be dynamic, especially growing up. You know, you grow up in a, in a situation where you sometimes just focus on what you do now and you see yourself as one thing, and you eventually grow up and redefine and educate yourself and see things differently. I definitely see myself first off as an Arab, then a Palestinian, Jordanian, and lastly, Christian. Mm-hmm. Christianity is a belief system. It's a religion, it's culture, or part of culture. So it's it's something between you and your belief system, who you are on the inside, has nothing to do with, you know, the exterior, who you are on the outside, who you are in connection to the people around you. And I definitely relate more to that connection. Not that I'm, I don't believe necessarily in religion, but I, I just, yeah, see myself more as, first off, as an Arab, because why should I necessarily believe in, in borders that were forced on me and on my people? And then as a Palestinian, Jordanian, maybe maybe even more Mediterranean, let's say, or mm-hmm. uh, Levantine, and then a Christian. And now you're in Germany, like whole other yeah. <laughs> new country, because <laughs> you know there's not enough. How do you um, how do you feel in Germany? Is the I don't know. Does it play into your identity? Of course, yeah. uh, you know. Um, our experiences shape us, and I definitely am shaped by Germany, definitely because I've lived here since. For in total for five years almost. So it definitely affects and shapes who I am today. And I, I love it here. But does it come into play with who I am on the inside and identity? It shapes maybe my way of thinking sometimes about some, some things, but not necessarily changing the identity. Because mm. for me, identity has a lot to do also with who you are on the core, with family, with values. And those things don't change really. We were talking about how the way that the conflict specifically between Palestine and Israel is sort of reported in, we wanted to know was like, are there a lot of prejudices or gaps in knowledge you've encountered here in Germany, either, you know, in the way it's reported, it's talked about, the way it's framed, 
this is an extremely important point. The Palestinian-Israeli, it's not a conflict. You know, usually, this is one thing anyway, uh, right? We always read Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but it's not a conflict. This is colonialism, but we should start using the right words to represent it. It is shaped as if it's a, a religious war, which is not, which is, it's, it's definitely not. Back in the day, there were Christian, Muslim, and Jewish Palestinians living in Palestine, all together, peacefully. So it's not about religion. This is colonialism. This is a separation of a nation. This is, you know, influence from the West to separate and to control and to divide for their own sake. This is not done for anyone else's sake. So it's not done for, you know, the West trying to, you know, give Jewish people a home. This is never about religion. And I would never believe that this was the aim. The aim was always to lead. The aim was always to gain power and gain influence. That's it. We did an episode on like Germany in particular and this particular relationship because of Germany's history with Israel. Have you had any conversations with Germans? Do I mean, do you ever say, hey, I'm Palestinian? I don't know how you identify yourself or if you you have these conversations. I like to sometimes provoke conversation about <laughs> it. So, yeah, just to see how people think. And because I'm, I'm really curious about that. And I, in many cases, depends on, on who I'm talking to. But in many cases, I feel some sort of, a, that this is a taboo topic. And Israel is mm. a taboo topic because... Yeah. I feel many Germans feel this uh, guilt towards the topic where it's a completely unrelated matter. And I feel here we have to think as humans, to be honest, not, not anything beyond that, because what, do we, what world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world in, in which we first are self-righteous, in which we allow things for others that and ourselves that we don't allow for everyone, do we want to live in a world where we say and claim that we are for equal rights for everyone and so on? And then we can see right in front of our eyes, people suffer and not given rights for self-determination for 75 years, where individuals cannot even have the basic rights of, of you know, finding a decent job because they don't have any reason to for identity where an entire culture and the population is being ethnically cleansed we sit and we watch that happen and then we claim that we are for human rights and equal opportunities and 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 i I think people should be more brave should be more honest with themselves first of all and then more vocal about how they see things if you want to look at it from your own perspective as a german then you can say yes we did or this happened in the past but we can also see other people suffering today and because we witnessed that firsthand we don't want other people to go through that now even if we're outside of the equation and we're not playing necessarily any direct role we should be a world leader in not letting that happen again and now it unfortunately is on the opposite end people can be complicit by being silent People can be complicit by not allowing, for example, some months ago when the journalist Shireen Abu Akhli was murdered by a soldier where the government here did not, for example, allow the demonstrations to take place. How can we be for open rights, for equal rights and have an open mind if we don't 
treat people actually equally and we don't give everyone a fair chance and an equal chance. It's a lot to live with. I just th- mm-hmm. I was just thinking like I think it's a lot to carry, right? Because like this is your people and and it's being ignored largely as well and there's a constant discrimination going on a constant sort of yeah ignoring of this problem while of course there are many other problems in the world and they uh, you know they also everything deserves equal time however palestine is really special in this way right because it just gets completely looked over <laughs> in this sense so it must be a lot to like carry with you i don't know to, to i think it's it. because it's, it has been going on for our entire lifetimes right so 75 years this has been going on so people probably just got used to it and therefore don't care anymore or don't put a spotlight to to solve the issue just because yeah it's been there for a long time but does it actually mean that we turn a blind eye and just allow things to happen i had this interview with nicholas frank who is He's the son of a very prominent Nazi. He was saying about, if you want to see the level of discomfort, because his, his whole theory is that actually the Germans didn't really deal with what happened with the Holocaust very well, like in their own families, like nobody talked about it. And he said, if you want to see how well we've dealt with it, you just mention Israel, Jews, anything, uh, Holocaust, any of these words at a dinner table and everyone falls silent. (laughs) And the silence, I think, in Germany. What's her name? Her name's like Deborah Feldman. She's an American journalist. She's, um, her family fled Germany and settled in the US. And she wrote this truly amazing article that I've been trying to find and can't find in the Stan about how Alphabetung, you know what like Germany did, actually had the opposite effect. So basically, the fact that the German state did Aufarbeitung meant that each individual person could be relieved of their individual guilt. So we've done the grieving, we've done the, you know, we've had the guilt. Mm. So I'm now released of my responsibility of what happened at that time. That's, um, that's what he said. He said, like, we did it well on a history level, but then when it comes to individual Germans, they just don't know, like, they really close up because they don't know, because they don't, they also are scared of being, like, anti-Semitic and stuff, right? So this is a big uh, problem and they don't, they haven't thought it through, like, they haven't figured it out within themselves how they they deal with this past and this guilt so i think and, and that's exactly the point is what is the learning outcome that we should all take from that experience should we all just accept it and say okay it happened then we shouldn't do it to the to those people again or should we just say we need to be better humans we need to treat everyone with the same approach we need to be braver we need to stop yeah. people when they're wrong, even if they were, even if we feel that, you know, they were once on the other end of the spectrum, we should now give them a free pass for everything because of how guilty we feel. You know, exactly. the learning outcome should be that let's not have that happen in the world again. I think Liana said it best. Uh, Liana came on to talk about the Philippines. We, we get everyone to say three things you can do this week to be a better person at the end of each podcast. And one of her things, and I think she said it so articulately, was like history, it repeats itself. It just doesn't come through the same door. So just because we think, hey, you know, never again with, you know, with the Holocaust, does it doesn't mean it's going to take the shape of anti-Semitism again. It could take, the same thing could take the shape as Islamophobia, for example, or something like this. 
A lot of people don't think that about like, oh, it's the same structural yeah. systematic problem, but just applied in different contexts. I think contexts and a little bit of a leap of imagination maybe is needed. And if we say never again, we should generalize this. Yeah. And we shouldn't just say never again when we're involved. Which, if you take a look at the world, never again is, no, right about now. Yeah. I would just like to stress out again that, you know, it's not a religious war. Uh, we lived a thousand years ago, almost, the Crusades, in which everyone was made to believe that we're fighting in the name of Christianity and so on and so forth. And it wasn't that. It was also the same that we're seeing now almost a thousand years later. Religion is being used as a tool to control the minds of the masses of people who don't necessarily follow up and aren't really into politics and so on. It's an easy tool to use to also lead people in a direction and manipulate people. And I think Christian Arabs have an extremely important role here to show that it's not a religious war and that we are all, so Arabs can be of all religions. Arabs aren't only one religion and our own, you know, our existence as Arab Christians somehow debunks the entire thing and the entire purpose. And that's why uh, we should be more vocal about the presence of Christianity and Christians in the region. So yeah, I'm, I'm, that's why I'm extremely happy to be here to to mention this and to put a finger on this topic. Basically, that that's something I really would like to just emphasize again. I mean, it's a really important point, and it's, it's mm. been really fascinating talking to you mm. uh, about your experience. Three things that you think people can do to be a better person this week. So thing one would be to be honest with yourself on who you are as an individual, and if you truly believe in what you say you do believe, and if you truly practice that, to reflect and to look inwardly and be honest with yourself about the belief system and the values that you say you have, because um, this will reflect on everything. And specifically in, in this cause, if we truly as humans believe in all of us being equal, uh, humans, regardless of, of gender, uh, sex, uh, religion, etc., are equal, then are we practicing that really on all, you know, fronts or not? That's one thing. Thing two. Something that just came to my mind is how, in many cases, we see illustrations of Christ. You know, we always draw him uh, and we see pictures of him being blue-eyed, you know, light brown hair, which is, ex which is you know, can be, if you go to Bethlehem and, and see people there, of course, or wherever. That's not how the, the, you know, the common look is. So are we somehow also forcing that this look is the beauty standard or is this, you know, way of claiming religion to one, one, one look and one, one type of people and saying that this is Christ because that's how we see him or how we see he should be looking like mm -hmm. and how we would relate to him. And if he looked differently, we wouldn't. Whitewashing of Christ, yeah. Thing three. I would just say in my specific case, what really helped me also quite, you know, understand this quite well and the uh, entire thing is look into history and look into how this whole thing happened in the area. You know, looking on how the, the entire Arab world got divided and what led us to the borders that we have today. I think this is very crucial and helps us in understanding the situation and the world that we live in. 
and helps us answer, you know, extremely what we think is complex is a complex question. Answer it in ex- in an extremely clear way. Just look how things were 120 years ago and what happened in you know, during the First World War, but in that area of the world, and it it will just help. Uh, so that would be my suggestion. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Yeah, thank pleasure. you very much. This has been great, honestly. Yay, I really like you. it. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as four euro a month. Visit Patreon.com/slash/misinformed for links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.